0: Welcome to The Catch-Up, a podcast where we bridge psychology, linguistics, and mythology to provide communication tools that fit your mind. I'm Neil.
1: And I'm Melissa. I'm a linguist and author with a concentration in discourse analysis. I also study and write about applied mythology and its effects on our ability to relate to ourselves and others.
0: And I have 10 plus years of experience in the field of psychotherapy. I write about the myths we all have in our mind and their effects on our everyday behavior.
1: This podcast brings together our respective fields so we can see what goes on in our minds, both socially and personally, so we can have the tools to communicate our way through any experience with understanding.
0: Be sure to head over to patreon.com slash meal, M-E-I-L, or meal.podbean.com to check out our patron programs and view the patron tiers. For just $4 a month, you'll become a top tier supporter and gain access to all of our current and future bonus episodes and content.
1: Thank you so much for your support. Now let's catch up.
0: Welcome back to The Catch-Up. Today's episode is Businesses and Societal Discourse, and we are extremely excited about this one because we're talking with our very special guest, Dr. Garima Sharma. Dr. Sharma studies how business can solve the social and environmental problems we face today. She believes business goals are often short-term and narrowly defined, but addressing social and environmental problems requires long-term thinking, interdisciplinary collaborations, and innovative ways of organizing. Her research focuses on how business and its decision makers successfully manage these tensions. She also studies research impact and how academics and practitioners can collaborate to generate innovative solutions for social and environmental issues. Dr. Sharma, we have so much respect for the work you're doing, and especially your research. It has so much um, breadth and depth to it. So we would love to hear more about your background, kind of what you're up to, and then we'll go from there.
2: Well, Melissa and Neil, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's been It's such a pleasure. I've admired your work for a couple of years now, so I'm really happy and excited to be here today speaking with you. I'm an assistant professor at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. I also direct the Bachelors in Interdisciplinary Studies in Social Entrepreneurship Program there, um, which is a social entrepreneurship program housed in the Policy Studies School. So very, very interesting opportunities. In terms of my research, I'm what one would call an organization theorist, which means I study how businesses and social enterprises really draw upon the power of business for doing good. And I look at it from this lens of tensions. So, you know, specifically, tension between purpose and profit. So, how does a business really do well for the others while also sustaining or growing its own business? In parallel, some of my research is around uh, studying how academia and research can really impact management practice, which I think is an interesting and important question because managers and researchers really come from a widely different world. And for research to impact practice, we have to figure out a way through which both can collaborate together and talk to each other, so some that's my research
1: yeah we're so excited to be able to have you on here and talk about this today because it's such an important topic and so how do you think businesses can position themselves to be problem solvers of these social and environmental issues that are so prevalent today
2: yeah so if we think about traditionally it's whose responsibility has it been to really address social and environmental issues it has really fallen under the purview of government and policymakers, who would either directly, um, you know, can support these activities or give money to nonprofits to address social and environmental issues. But over time, it's been a downward trend in the sense of, you know, money has been drying out and funding has been less and less. So, business really has the opportunity to fill that void. And, um, you know, if you think about uh, businesses' day-to-day operations, you know, whether it accepts or not, it has a footprint in in the fact that it impacts both positively and negatively our communities and the natural environment. So I love how you frame it in terms of how business can be problem solvers because it is already a part of the problem and now it's incumbent upon businesses to really step up and become part of the solution. And there's been significant research, some of my own and others, on how business can be a force for good. And if I were to sum up um, you know, all of that research, there are two ways to understand uh, this issue. First is that uh, business uh, produces products and services that would directly benefit others beyond businesses, shareholders. And there are many uh, amazing organizations producing products such as Patagonia's products, you know, very environmentally friendly, or Tom's shoes, which is a one-for-one model where if I buy a shoe in the developed world, they will donate another shoe to children in the developing world. So there are many ways that business harness their products and services to do uh, good in the world. The second way to understand, uh, you know, how business can be part of a solution is how business organizes its own business practices to be able to create good in the world. So think about uh, Ben & Jerry's. So if you think about Ben & Jerry's, you know, they offer paid employee volunteer time for employee activism. So that's a practice that can really create good in the world. If you think about Greystone Bakery, which is a social enterprise, they hire previously incarcerated so their hiring practices has a direct impact on um, others who may otherwise not be employed in other places. So there are, those are the two ways, either, either through their products or services or through how business organizes its business practices. Can business be a part of the solution?
0: What a great way to conceptualize that. We really like how you're using those categories to um, make sense of this. So what we're also wondering then is how can businesses and researchers play a part in this? Why is that important um, that they work together?
2: Yeah, and that's such a good question because, you know, uh, traditionally, businesses' responsibility had been delegated to a decoupled CSR or sustainability department, but where the narrative is going is really around business issues and business decisions are social issues, you know? And um, I'm reminded of a recent project that I'm uh, doing. We are in, uh, interview. We have interviewed about 137 CEOs and CFOs, and asking them about their strategic decision-making process. And the variance within their uh, between their answers is fascinating for me, because some decision makers are clearly able to take a systems view. When they make strategic decisions like mergers and acquisitions or opening a new production plant, they are able to understand and include in their decision-making impact on communities and environment and so forth. At the same time, there are still many, many business leaders who remain narrowly focused on the cost-benefit calculations in front of them So, you know, so the question uh, is less about, you know, whether business is uh, part of the problem or not because whether they acknowledge it or not, they do have a footprint. You know, an issue really facing the business is how how do they include a systems view in making their decisions? And Facebook is a great example of this notion of impact and when we think about unintended consequences, you know, that one company has literally changed, you know, the way we interact and live in the world and, you know, our political systems and so on and so forth. And, you know, how does business leaders take this view of imagining and predicting and living forward with those unintended consequences that may be possible? I think that's the role of business, you know, when we think about problem solving. And then also there is, you know, another capabilities argument, the fact that businesses are really set up to efficiently, effectively organize for producing goods and services. So there is certain value in harnessing this approach instead of looking at charity dollars or government dollars, really using this approach to um, address uh, wicked problems and big challenges facing in front of us like poverty and climate change. As for your question about researchers and why they should help in solving problems, I think it's a larger conversation to have because the way the current academic system is set up, at least in the field of management research in which I am, it is really not set up for problem solving. Uh, What it is set up for is really to generate knowledge and produce academic articles, which are usually behind paywalls, so really not accessible to too many people. And, uh, you know, problem solving is really not front and center. But to answer your question, I do believe that it is important for researchers to contribute to problem solving for a couple of reasons. Uh, First is that our research is funded by public dollars. So it is uh, incumbent upon us to give back to people in terms of research insights and talk to people and be part of solution making. And if you think about, you know, who is an academic and what our day-to-day job is, we're really, uh, you know, positioned to take a deep dive into issues and produce database, evidence-based answers which are independent and objective. And so if we think about around ourselves, not many actors in our society play that role. So, again, that's another reason for researchers to be a part of solution-making.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: And I think that's a really important way to conceptualize this, all those components you brought up in those examples. And I also wonder, and Neil and I have been discussing this together, how can we motivate businesses to become part of the solution to these problems? How can we motivate them? What's in it for them?
2: Yeah, and, you know, when we think about benefits, uh, it is usually what we call a business case argument, right? So we think about by doing good, the business in long term will do well. That, you know, so some of the examples of benefit would be it will reduce risk, such as that of climate change, which can disrupt its operation. Or maybe if it has environmentally friendly products, it can sell more products because millennials want maybe wanting to buy responsible products and services. And so this business case argument and this idea of business benefit is important because You know, when it started, when this conversation started decades ago, it really normalized this notion of business doing good uh, for others. And so many businesses jumped on the bandwagon. And hence, there is value in thinking about a business case argument. And at the same time, I feel the argument really limits our understanding or potential on or uh, what is possible, especially when we think about issues that do not directly benefit the business or its employees. Um, you know, if you think about broader impacts, so if we think about societal benefits, we have to often have to shift this narrative from a business case to, again, I'm going to use this word systems view, the idea that business really is part of a system, its operations inevitably influence others, so the conversation we must have now is really how to equip business leader to see themselves as inseparable from society and natural environment. Because when we consider business benefits as separate from benefits of society, then you know this notion of trade-offs come between, um, which is really where business case argument has been stuck. You know? So what about the issues that do not have a business case attached to them? whose responsibility are those issues. So again, I think it's important to motivate business leaders and establish a business case, but it's also important to equip them for this systems thinking so that they're able to see their business benefit as completely intertwined with benefits of, for others.
0: Yes, definitely. You know we agree with you there. We think this has a lot to do with blending, kind of blending those categories of concern and evolving our systems thinking kind of just generally. And so one group that's doing a great job of this, we think, is B Corporations. We actually met you at a B Corporation event that you put on, and we'd love to hear more about what they are, kind of what they're having traction-wise nationally and internationally.
2: Sure, yeah. So B Corps are really uh, for-profit businesses. And what they do is uh, they get their business practices certified by a third party called B Lab. So the letter B here stands for benefit, which means that businesses have organized their practices to benefit a larger group of stakeholders like employees, society, and natural environment. And, you know, often uh, the word B Corp or the phrase B Corp is confused with benefit corporation and so I'll take a moment to also distinguish the two. So a benefit corporation is really a type of a legal structure such that, you know, business is sort of baking into its article of incorporation that will consider a broad set of stakeholders and not just shareholders in making decisions. So. We have B Corps that are certified businesses, and then we have benefit corporations, which are businesses that have adopted a legal structure for benefiting stakeholders. And there is some overlap between the two groups, so it's not a complete overlap. And B Corps, uh, most B Corps are benefit corporations, but most benefit corporations are not B Corps. It's it's often get uh, confounded. If you think about B Corps, you know, the profit businesses that get certified it really is a very fast-growing movement and i checked this morning and this data are uh, available publicly there are right now 3821 certified b corps in 150 industries across 74 countries so it's really a global movement and you know so that's the big picture But if we look at, if we drill down and look at the variance between states, I think some of that variance is really striking and interesting. So you said, uh, Neil, that we met at a B Corp event in New Mexico. So if you think about New Mexico um, and compare it with its neighboring state, Colorado, New Mexico is a very progressive outlook. It is what we call the majority minority state, and yet it has only nine B Corps. But if we think about Colorado, it has over 100. So there is growth, but there's also, I think, differences between states. And when we start looking at the variants, the um, picture starts to look less exciting, but to give a more positive framing to it, I think it is also a great opportunity to participate in growth of that movement because there's so much potential state by state.
1: Thank you for making that distinction because that phraseology can get a little bit confusing. And what Neil and I have been discussing and kind of the theme for this particular season of this podcast is uncomfortable conversations. You know, those conversations that can create dissonance or potentially even divides between the people taking part in the discussion because they're a little bit more sensitive than your everyday topics of conversation. And I think the particular topics we've touched on here today, these social and environmental topics and issues, definitely fall into that arena of potentially uncomfortable conversations. So our question, I guess, is when a business decides to take a stand on one of these topics, whether explicitly through their communications or implicitly through their everyday structure, how can they communicate their stance to employees, clients, customers, shareholders, what have you? securely and in a way that says we're here to do good and that's a good thing
2: yeah and it is so important right now as you identified melissa more than ever i think all of us are rightly so tuned into these issues and so it's important for business leaders to think about how they're talking about these issues because definitely their employees are watching (laughs) you know how businesses are responding (laughs) to these issues so To answer your question directly, you know, I think this phenomena, we would call it in research, this idea of internal and external framing. So if you think about internal framing, it'll be how business communicates internally to its employees, you know, sort of its stance on business responsibility. So if I think about large businesses, you know, some of the tools would be maybe employee newsletters, town halls and such. If I think about small businesses, it would be through everyday conversations between managers and their, you know, as, as those that they supervise the employees that they supervise. It could be by leaders walking their talk, such as you know the example of providing paid volunteering time. So that would also communicate through actions the businesses' stance on these issues. When we think about external framing, a couple of things that would come to my mind would be. CEOs talking at public uh, events, I think CEO activism is a big, you know, trend right now, rightly so. So what is a CEO talking at a public event in in response to some of these uh, trends and issues that you mentioned in your question? I think quarterly investor calls is a great way to frame businesses' stance on, on responsibility. CEO letters to shareholders, CSR reports, and then even going back to the idea of B Corp certification or even business roundtable statements, I think these certifications are another great way to communicate to the not only the employees, but also to the world, the business stance on uh, their responsibility.
0: Yes. And I think your answer there plays perfectly into this next question, which is a little more meta. With a year like 2020, with all of its civil rights movements, global health crises, tumultuous political rhetoric, how do you see businesses playing into the continuation of problems or kind of taking the other route of helping contribute to the evolution or solving of those problems? Moving forward.
2: I think there are many roles business can play right now. You know, 2020 has been really a historic year in many ways, and 2021 continues to be that. I mean, first is really speaking up. I think CEOs uh, need to speak up now more than ever before. Um, And as important as speaking up is also who is speaking up. So I think representation is so important, both in external facing and internal decision making i think diversity and inclusion is on everybody's mind and this is really the opportunity for businesses to shift and really engage with that discussion and change you know who is uh, representing you know their views and who really belongs to their organizations i think it's also time for business to reevaluate where do their responsibilities begin and end? And so before, uh, you know, for a couple of years now, there's been much talk of this idea of global supply chains and whether business and say the U.S. is responsible for what happens in, let's say, a supplier factory in Bangladesh, their working conditions, or maybe whether a tech company in Silicon Valley is responsible for the affordable housing crisis in California. And so those were really uh, people have grappled with those questions around where does business responsibility lie and this pandemic has really showed us how tightly we are connected literally Mm -hmm. and really there's no excuse anymore for business to shun these responsibilities Um, and you know going back to this idea of systemic nature of some of the social and environmental issues And really the current environment has revealed how narrowly we have thought about these issues. And I'll take a quick example. So remote working and gender is one such issue. You know, data showed that so many women have sort of quit working, we've lost them in the workforce. They've had challenges of productivity because they're balancing work life with home life, you know, in remote working environments. And so businesses can really not have productive employees without fully wrestling with what the pandemic has shown us in terms of gender and work distribution in our society. And, you know, they need to, businesses need to step up and consider what is their role in changing this narrative in our society. So I think there are a couple, these are a few examples that come to my mind.
1: I would absolutely have to agree with you there. And I think... Within all of this, we have touched on several different types of businesses. We've talked about tech. We've lightly touched on retail. We've touched on food with Ben and Jerry's mentioning them. And so in your opinion, based on your research or what you've seen or talked about with your colleagues, what types of businesses do you see as having the most impact in terms of either continuing these problems or potentially entering the arena as problem solvers?
2: Yeah, when you know when research really started in this space, there was a couple a few decades ago. The questions researchers were asking were really around this idea of dirty industries such as oil or product based industries who have higher footprint versus service industries with lower footprint and asking if they you know, some of these industries with higher footprint are more prone to engage in responsible action. And I think, fortunately, our conversation has increasingly become more nuanced. So BCOPS is an example. As I mentioned, BCOPS are in 154 industries right now. And so there's variance, uh, you know, in that uh, it includes both high footprint industries and arguably r- low footprint industries. So I think the kind of questions researchers are asking right now is really around what allows a business to, let's say, become a B Corp or engage in socially responsible actions mm-hmm. rather than just thinking about, you know, sort of type of industry. And um, as an example, from my own research, I found that peer pressure is a a big mechanism for businesses to engage in responsible action, where peers can be defined either by how many people within your industry, and not just type of industry, but how many people within your industry are B Corp certified, or even by a geographical region, how many others in say New Mexico or Colorado have been certified. So I think there's more focus on the context and less some sort of type of business and even less so i feel on you know valorizing business leaders um so to answer your question i really don't have insight on what kind of business leaders would respond to you know opportunity to address social and environmental issues what i would want us to sort of think about is how can our context and how business is operating can really reveal systemic nature of some of these issues where business is an important part of the system but it is just one part of the system and it has to realize sort of the interconnections it has with others.
0: Yeah, and we see actually one of your strengths is how matter of fact you are about all of this, how comfortable you make it. Um, Some of these territories can get uncomfortable for people Um, but i think if you hear it this way the way you bring it in it really makes sense that this stuff affects everyone so the question becomes how can businesses effectively and professionally communicate their stances on these social and environmental issues with the understanding that it can become uncomfortable
2: yeah i mean i i love that question you know you use the uh, phrases effectively and professionally what i would add to that is also authentically and you know, if we look around us with the growth in social media, I think authenticity is really what draws people in, which means that business needs to share bad with the good. If you make a mistake, you know, you can engage with the public in making sense of that mistake and discussing it. And so it really social media allows for that kind of authenticity. And, you know, somebody who comes to my mind is uh, Paul Paulman, who was the CEO at Unilever. And, you know, if, if you follow him or if you look at his engagement with social media, he's really harnessing the power of social media to participate in a broader conversation around business responsibility, which then effectively and professionally communicates Unilever's stance on such issues. So having this authentic dialogue with others, which is so important. I'm going to also add a quick uh, you know, piece of counterintuitive research, which I find fascinating. So there's a lot of research on certification and communication about social and environmental issues. And what researchers have found is that the audience are really quick to penalize businesses that claim social responsibility, and they may... Uh, then go about and commit a mistake so they're perceived as sort of hypocritical. So this, uh, this strategy of silence, also often called strategic silence, is as important as communication for many businesses in the sense that what do they communicate at what time in terms of showing the level of their commitment to some of these issues.
1: Yes, and I think that's absolutely important context to have going into the next question, because for those of us who aren't in the business and management fields, or that maybe aren't necessarily up to date on all of the research that you're pulling from, from that perspective, it can sometimes look like businesses are hesitant to enter these arenas of these particular conversation topics. Which again from an outside perspective can sometimes give off the perception that businesses are hesitant to add this type of benevolency to their business structure or to their communications. And a lot of times that looks like avoidance for the sake of profit or for saving face or whatever the case may be. But in the same breath you have groups like millennials as you mentioned who are really wanting to work for and put their dollar into companies that are benevolent and that are doing good things for society and for the environment. So I guess with that in mind, what is your stance based on your research and the work you've done? What's your opinion on how comfortable or uncomfortable businesses overall are in entering these arenas and taking these stances on these potentially uncomfortable topics? Are they getting more comfortable? Are they kind of staying stagnant? What's your take on this?
2: I think the current year and 2020 is really um, brought to surface this idea that CEO activism is a trend thing, it's important and people are not only noticing what business leaders say but they're also noticing when they choose to remain quiet you know? mm. yeah. and I think their remaining quiet on important issues is also constantly evaluated by the audience so I think that's really different when we think about communication we always think about what they're saying but I think when we see these hot button issues and this really emotionally charged last year and this year I think sadly is equally important to consider when you think about communication. And the other piece of it would be understanding your audience is so important for business leaders. So I love this example because it has so many layers to unpack in terms of communication. So Chick-fil-A is a fast food um, company. I live in Atlanta, and Chick-fil-A is a household name. Everybody loves going to Chick-fil-A. And then a couple of, I I believe it was uh, a year or two ago, uh, Twitter CEO, um, Jack Dorsey, he posted a picture on Twitter about a purchase he made at Chick-fil-A, and immediately there was a significant backlash because Chick-fil-A's CEO has a specific take on gay marriage, which is not appreciated by progressives. So... Jack, uh, Jack Dorsey backtracked and apologized. So again, an example of, of you know, Chick-fil-A CEO's communication, then Twitter CEO communication in the mix. But what is most interesting to me is that despite all the backlash, Chick-fil-A continues to log some of the highest revenue per location in the fast food industry. So I think this link between backlash and revenue is also really an interesting one to explore. There may be many invisible assumptions about impact of communication that need to be explored further in terms of how does communication really change things concretely for the business and for others
0: yes and you're covering a lot of range with that and that brings to mind some other nuances with this for example businesses in different areas everybody has different interests in these categories of concern And so we're thinking about like rural businesses, small businesses, how much impact can they have with this? How can we get their voices heard better?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I go back to this phenomenon of B Corps that we talked about a couple of minutes ago. So if we think about who is a B Corp, these are usually really small businesses, even though now the movement is attracting larger businesses too, but the majority is still small business. Some are even what's called solopreneurs, which means that it's a one-person business. But their voices are heard because they have joined forces. I think they're part of a movement, you know, even if it's an eclectic one like B Corp. Or we can also think about a more uh, homogenous one like joining an industry association. So I think for small businesses, one way to get their voice heard is really to join forces and think about their work as part of a movement and not just trying to create change all by themselves. I think another way small businesses can really uh, participate in this conversation on social and environmental issues is collaborating with local business schools. You know? And they can, by doing that, they can really show the next generation of leaders, which are the students in these schools, about you know what this small business is doing in terms of social and environmental responsibilities. So some of the examples would be speaking in business school classrooms or participating in case study writing or even joining events and having their voice heard could be some useful leverage points for small businesses to have their voices
0: heard.
1: Yeah, and I love that sense of community you harnessed there in your response because I think a lot of times small businesses can tend to feel like, well, I'm new or I'm tiny or I'm just starting out or whatever the case may be and they can just kind of feel like they're over here kind of on their own little island so I think that sense of community is absolutely key and with that in mind we only really have one last question for you which is where do you see the most opportunity for implementing the research that you've done how would you like to see it played out and how would you like to see it being harnessed out in the world
2: Yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of, you know, how can I really mobilize my research? How can it really get in the hands of people who would actually use it? So one way to understand implementation would be through translating research into actionable ideas and practices. And I try to do that with most of my projects, even though it's not incentivized in the academic system but I really feel it is you know, our responsibility to do that translation work. So if I think about a few of my ongoing projects, I'm hoping that what comes out of those projects, I can contribute to conversation around B Corp certifications, impact investing, social enterprises, and place-based organizing. So again, taking those final outputs that I produce and translating them. I think another way to understand implementation is also through this idea of knowledge Mm co-creation with the users of peer research. So um, what knowledge co-creation really tells us is that instead of providing managers with all the answers, researchers are including managers in the process of research as really knowledge partners and such that, you know, what the knowledge that we produce is rigorous and relevant for practice. And, you know, traditional research processes do not really support this stance. It's highly challenging to get this kind of research published in our academic journals because, you know, what we are trained to do as researchers is really adopt this role of objective sage on this stage, who has all the answers. So, so what I have been studying is like really how knowledge co-creation comes about. We can produce uh, rigorous and relevant knowledge. There's no trade-offs there. So to answer your question in terms of implementation, I'm hoping that some of my research insights on knowledge co-creation can really change the conversation in academia on how researchers engage with practice.
0: And that's what we really appreciate about your research. It takes that translation and it really makes sure the interpretation of it is as understood as possible without the bias that's often kind of interjected into certain types of research. Um, You do a great job of taking a meta view and then breaking it down so that it can be really applicable for anybody that's interested. And so we appreciate that a lot. So thank you.
1: Agreed. And with that in mind, are there any last-minute thoughts you had or anything else you want people to understand or know about your research
2: no i think your questions were great they were comprehensive i really enjoyed this conversation i always welcome hearing from people in practice who are interested in using some of these ideas or partnering around some of these ideas so I would welcome any if anybody from your audience who would reach out and
1: explore how we can support each other's work. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for being here with us today and having this really important, wonderful, relevant conversation. We loved hearing about your research as we always do. And for any of you listeners out there who would like to talk to Dr. Sharma more about her work or about potential ways you can collaborate, her email is... G Sharma 7 at gsu.edu that's gsharma7 at gsu.edu so feel free to reach out to her that way but otherwise it's been a pleasure catching up with you all
0: and let's keep evolving that business and societal discourse forward we got this let's go
1: we'll catch you on the flip side